Hello, and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Wood, and I'm lucky enough today to be joined by Stefano Trucanico. Uh, Stefano is a polar expedition specialist. Uh, he's a problem solver, guide, and adventurer with over 25 years of experience in exploration. He's been involved in everything from spelunking to seafaring, bear safety, and rope work. Uh, most recently, he's been involved in polar guiding in the Antarctic, and he's now living on the side of a mountain in BC, hacking his way through the woods um, to hopefully maybe find his way to civilization at some point. So first and foremost, welcome, Stefano. Thank you very much, Stephen. Great, great. So, you know, I, I uh, have you know, seen some of your work because you were involved um, in a recent documentary about the Sea Shepherd. Um, and, you know, I, uh, um, we got together on LinkedIn and I had a real interest in a lot of the work that you were doing. Cause you just seem to really kind of do it all. You're, you're, uh, you know, a Jack of all trades, Swiss army knife kind of guy. Um, yes. you, yes. yeah, I mean, you, you know, on the sea shepherd, you were third engineer, uh, you were the ship medic, you were the drone operator. Um, you were involved in the chase boat. We certainly want to hear about some of that experience, um, but also just kind of, you know, we're world extreme medicine. We want to talk a little bit about what your experience in the austere environment of, you know, working on a boat that's involved in, um, you know, large mammal conservation. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about, you know, some of your work um, in the medical piece, but I also think our listeners would like to hear about you know, kind of, um, you know, mammal and large mammal in particular conservation and, and uh, how you got involved in that. Um, yeah. So maybe that's what we can start with is just talk a little bit about, you know, how you got involved in, in the Sea Shepherd project and, you know, what kind of your interest in and around, you know, um, working with um, these uh, mammals uh, and, and all creatures uh, was like. Yeah. Well, having grown up in South Africa and, pretty much from childhood remembering the massive poaching problems we had, especially the black rhino was kind of the poster child of, of the endangered species uh, back in the day. You know, if they've been trying to protect that poor thing for half a century now and have failed uh, eventually, the, the white rhino, the northern white rhino is now extinct with all sorts of efforts. And, you know, you see this stuff going on wherever you go. And then I started to travel around the world and, and just exploring the world for myself as a young man, not really worried too much, quite being quite happy to have escaped the whole, uh, my childhood over there and being happy to see the rest of the world. But you see the, prob the same problems everywhere you go, poaching by the local communities, and the stuff just gets shipped off and disappears to another country somewhere to be used as some kind of medicine. You hear the same story over and over and over again. And then you get to the point where you, you feel helpless. And all, all that's out there really is a bunch of protest groups. And I'm not a stand around on a Saturday afternoon and, and make a nuisance of myself in front of parliament with placards and, and or protest or sign petitions. There's a place for all of that, but it, it never appealed to me because it didn't feel like it. I didn't see it achieving anything. Having been on that side of things, on the receiving end, where the poaching was happening and seeing the poaching, and you know this money, the, the goodwill and the money just doesn't make it there. What you need is men with guns and big fences and 
regular patrols. That's the only thing that stops any kind of poaching. And how I got into Sea Shepherd was I realized after having, I don't remember how I got onto them, but I, the only direct action group out of everything put together and they split early on precisely because of that you had you had a very vocal group that that was there and bearing witness and and protesting and doing everything they can but it's really not enough you have to go you have to interfere because if something is illegal it's already illegal it's not only illegal it's also incredibly destructive so someone has to step in if nobody's stepping in nothing will happen and on the open ocean beyond 200 miles of most patrolled coastlines if they even have a coast guard it's a complete free-for-all and if people are going to take the liberty to go out there and rape and pillage everything they can find then organizations like sea shepherd are going to take the liberty to go out there and make it difficult for them because really we're talking about a dozen ships 150 volunteers at sea trying to do this across the globe all the way down to antarctica they were the only ones who actively opposed whaling um, down there for 40 years. And eventually they drove the Japanese, I think a little bit crazy eventually. They just thought it's not worth it. 40 years of grinding against these guys. And every time they, they went down there to whale, they would find Sea Shepherd and they just escalated to a point where it was um, ridiculous to try and prove a point anymore. And they just gave it up. So thanks to them, there's no whaling in Antarctica anymore from the Japanese, at least. But <clears throat> we still have big problems with longliners and and all sorts of uh, trawlers coming in. Now the krill is being uh, harvested, as they say, for human consumption, which you don't even have to um, do the math or, or even look at the numbers too much to know that that's going to be a problem very, very quickly. As, right. as soon as there's a market for it, you, you can guarantee there's going to be hundreds and not thousands of unnamed, unmarked, illegal vessels turning up to scoop everything they can. So, right. And that's going to really someone impact, has to do the, that's going to impact the, the food chain for these animals and, and drive them to places where they shouldn't be. I mean, we've actually, I live in New England and, you know, the, the fauna here is mostly minkies. We also have um, humpbacks and fins. But they've seen, you know, other um, whales in the area. Um, and, we, you know, the thought is that some of these are being just pushed into these regions, you know, looking for food. Say whales, yeah. they've even seen some orcas. And the thought is, you know, they're just they're looking for food. Um, and I, we think that, you know, our animals as well, you know, thankfully we have, um, you know, uh, some sanctuaries uh, here that have been well maintained um, and, uh, you know, uh, year after year we get our, our same animals here, but certainly, you know, those kind of things could impact them even being able to make it here. Um, if they didn't have that food source, um, to yeah. be able to travel and that can, can really be disruptive to the entire, you know, the community yeah. of animals, which is just devastating, just devastating. Yeah. I mean, look, most animals will adapt and have had to adapt in the past to different food sources, which is why they just know where to go and they can seem to look, they're not going to do as well as they 
mm-hmm. as they can on their favorite food source. No, but nothing is. And right. everything is going to be pressured one way or another. But right. when you've got a commercial activity that comes in there and indiscriminately drops down a net, you know, it's just unbelievably large with these massive heavy weights at the bottom. It just leaves nothing behind. It's, it's, that's just not natural. It's not right. And nothing can recover from that because you're clearing everything from the ground right up to the top. Everything is getting scooped up an entire ecosystem in a run. You know, you, you, that's a different kind of pressure. It's not a, it's very sudden and it's very abrupt and destructive. It's not a, it's not a slow decline, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, fishing definitely has the, the most, the biggest potential to change the ocean ecosystems or to collapse them above anything else that's being purported as, as a pressure for, the, whether it's acidification or pollution. These things all add up, yes, of course, they're incrementally, but when you've got, when you look at the numbers, even if you adjust the numbers to suit the critics who came out and said it was exaggerated and that they may think it's exaggerated, but from someone who's been out there and knows what's going on, you have to realize that the film only had 90 minutes to tell a story of something that's happening across the globe, 24 hours a day, nonstop with hundreds of thousands of vessels. So those numbers are not exaggerated. That's the tip of the iceberg. And, um, you know, and they're still spending millions trying to cover up and, and greenwash everything or bluewash everything. It's absolute nonsense, and there should be no tolerance for it, none whatsoever, mm-hmm. let mm-hmm. alone, uh, you know, coming out, these apologists coming out from big marketing campaign uh, companies, and, and that, you know, that's what they do. It's like the, you accuse the tobacco companies and you drag them in court. What do they do? They just... Uh, churn out marketing to try and clean out their image. That's all they do and hope that it'll go away. But this is a problem we cannot turn away from. Poaching is going to wipe everything out before we have a chance to, to do anything to the climate. We're talking, you know, let's look at the polar bear situation, for instance, to staying on the marine wildlife. We got, Estimated 36 to 38, maybe 40,000 polar bears. But we also kill in hunted situations with a rifle 700 to 1,000 of those every year. And 75% of those are killed in Canada. Mm. Now, if you know the polar bear has been used as the poster child for everything from Coca-Cola to climate change. You know, they use it for everything. Everyone uses the fluffy poor polar bear floating on the iceberg by itself. And, and, and there's this whole narrative that they're starving to death and they're drowning. And, and, and really, the amount of bears that are starving and drowning compared to the amount of bears that are hunted are minute. And mm-hmm. those, are, those are always going to be there one way or another. You get sick bears, you get incapacitated bears, which starve and, and drown all the time. But a thou, up to a thousand bears a year shot by rifle and then rugs shipped off to Norway, to China, to, because they don't sell them here. Right. And then on top of that, there's the, the original Sea Shepherd um, gripe against the ceiling on the east coast of, of Canada here, which got everyone into a lot of trouble because 
Paul Watson having been Canadian and yeah. having kind of stepped over the line here in Canada. Now we can't even go near that. You can't observe it. Any vessel that comes there and interferes will be impounded, everybody arrested. It's, mm. it's, it's protected by the Coast Guard, and they slaughter hundreds of thousands of seals. And, and on the other side of the world, you have all these people campaigning and spending millions, and, and like their, their hearts are just bleeding for these, for, to save a few animals here and there. And these mass slaughters carry on every year on a, on a regular basis, and people don't even know about it. So I think what needs to happen is at least let's get this stuff out in the open and take a, take a tally of what we're actually doing here and not looking up at the sky and waiting for a bunch of politicians to crank the thermostat down one or two degrees and like that's going to fix anything. It's not going to stop the bullets flying. It's not going to stop all these animals being chopped up and stuffed into containers and sent off to China or Japan or wherever they go because that's where they go. People don't like to have that conversation. They don't like to make distinctions between one thing or another. You're just supposed to raise the problem and not name anybody. But this is not one of those problems. You know, this is not a, this is not politics. This is human beings paying and enabling an, an incredibly destructive, uh, uh, something that's, that can crash the, the, the ocean ecosystems. And if that goes, we can forget it. There's an entire oxygen cycle that takes place that's, reliant on, on that entire ecosystem being left alone to, to manage itself. I can't imagine that a few politicians and some NGOs and well-meaning billionaires know a damn thing about managing the ocean or the atmosphere or the planet or all these things they're hoping to do with their gadgets and, and algorithms. It's just obscene what's going on right now. And poaching is rampant, fishing is rampant, and the stuff is being loaded in the millions of tons, and people are worried about the boogeyman, really. Mm. Nothing you can do anything about, nothing nobody can see or do anything about, but we're up to our necks in blood and guts of fish, animal products everywhere you look. It's in makeup, it's in supplements, it's in your food chain. You have no idea. We have no idea what we're eating, where it's coming from. Anything that's labeled sustainable, is nonsense unless it's coming from a farm on land somewhere. Mm-hmm. Anything that's coming from open ocean, whether it's a pinned uh, farmed salmon or whether it's and this ridiculous notion of sustainable fishing, just forget it. That's an absolute oxymoron. Impossible. Impossible. Not anymore. Maybe when you're running around with a little tugboat with three of your buddies pulling in nets by hand, that's fine. But uh, not with some mega trawler going out there backed by, by some of the largest companies in the world stockpiling fish wherever they go and then driving up the prices just like they do. It's in, yeah, just a commodity. And, uh, yeah, and, I, and I think a lot of people, you know, uh, especially the polar bear, um, you know, we, I think most people think that, oh, we, there is no way that this is still going on. You know, this has been a well-published struggle um, and that, yeah. you know, you know, I don't think a lot of people realize that there's still a polar bear hunting season in Canada yeah. um, and that, you know, these beautiful animals uh, are still being you know, hunted and there's just no good reason for it. Um, and similarly, 
you know, um, the SEAL, um, you know, uh, efforts are, I think a lot of people recall, you know, the SEAL clubbing post, you know, posters and campaigns and, yeah, you know, yeah. we, we, you know, a lot of people, I think still think, Oh, we, we've solved this problem. It's gone, um, yeah. It <laughs> it's yeah, it's no. just, it's gone undercover. Um, I want to, sure, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I want to transition now to kind of just talk about then, you know, you worked, uh, you did a number of different things. Uh, I, I worked just one summer as a deckhand on a whale watch boat here in Boston. And I thought that was kind of a cool job, but I realized mostly it was loading people on, loading people off and then cleaning up. Yeah. Um, that was kind of my job. <laughs> there, although, yeah. Um, third engineer is certainly uh, a much, uh, you know, uh, more experienced and important job. Um, similarly, you know, you also did some drone operations and some chase boat, but you're also the ship medic. What are, what kind of medical training um, and what kind of medical resources do you have on these expeditions? Um, you know, what, you know, even on the whale boat watch boat that I uh, worked on, you know, we had an AED and we had a basic first aid kit because we're going out for three hours. Most people didn't know how to use it. Um, so it's there yeah. as what I called medical decor. Um, it yeah. made everyone feel better, but like I knew how to use it, but it, you know, there weren't many others who did. What kind of ex yeah. training did you have? And um, you know, what kind of expectations did they have of you working as ship medic, other medical professionals maybe that were involved as well? Yeah. Well, usually what we do is they at least have a ship, uh, a qualified doctor that comes on rotation. But um, to find doctors that are willing to go away, you see, Liberia required you to go for at least a couple of months because getting visas was a bit of a problem. So they, they required a little longer commitment than usual and to, to get a doctor to, to give up their practice for two months or whatever to come out. It's not easy. And then on top of that, you have whether they're interested to do that in dangerous conditions for the sake of fish, really, right. when, you, when you break it down. And it's not everyone's uh, – and there's, there's, there's enough of them that come, and we, we use their knowledge as much as we can to update. We have a proper medical room on every ship, as most ships do, and we try to, to, to keep it as stocked as with, with the most common stuff that you would require. Nothing, nothing traumatic. I mean, anything, anything major trauma – uh, we were never more than, let's, let's say, 200 miles from shore. So we could run into shore within a few hours and get them to some fairly rudimentary medical facilities. But we had a medical room with what we needed and some basic life support uh, equipment. And, and, but I never, I kind of fell into that role just on the training that I've always had for expedition work, which is advanced um, wilderness first responder mostly. And then on top of that, my own um, expansion on whatever we needed when we were in the field in whatever particular environment. But, you know, you get to a certain point where you start to become equipment reliant. And then that, if that equipment isn't there, there's really not much that can happen um, other than, than uh, just keep things as stable as possible. And we, we had an incident on, on a couple, but um, the one that caused the most concern was 
medical. We had a, the chief of the lifeguards had collapsed on board one of the vessels we were searching because it had gone on for six or seven hours and they're out on deck with their, with their, their bulletproof jackets on, with their rifles on just standing in the sun and he just collapsed. Mm. And it was, it was fumbled because the, we work with a security company in between and, and the, the kind of getting him back to the ship was, took a little longer than usual. But I mean, he was, he was incapacitated. And when you got him onto the ship, his eyes were like saucers. He was just staring at me and he didn't mutter a word. I couldn't get a word out of him. I couldn't get a nod, a yes or a no, nothing. He just looked at me. And that's, that's, what, I, <laughs> that's what I had. Of course, yeah. I was assuming it was heat-related, but right. there was no way of getting it out of him, not a bead of sweat. And, and of course, as a very dark man from Liberia, I can't see flushed or, you know, it's not the same. I'm not, I'm, I wasn't, I didn't have enough training on, on darker-skinned folks to tell the difference between when, when they do go pale or flushed. Or it, I, I, was, I was quite <laughs> taken back, and I wasn't ready for it either because we weren't really, we were in the middle of stripping the engine and doing major repairs, so it was down there. And I was working the bridge, and we were doing all sorts of things. But So I ended up using an, a, a, a doctor in Australia to help me diagnose back and forth and to, to, to help me um, work this out. And he, he recovered eventually. We just cooled him down as best we could. There was not much we can do. We ran an IV. And um, after a while, he started to be able to respond. And, and he, he came around, fortunately. But he didn't, he didn't want to go to the hospital in, in Monrovia because he knew what it was like. He, <laughs> he, he wanted to stay on the ship because he knew we had better facilities. He'd been there before, right? And he didn't. He didn't like the doctors, so you, right. he chose me as a, as a medic over over one of the doctors at the We're going to a hospital, hospital in Monrovia. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, it it's fairly basic stuff. I mean, if anything bad happens, it would be probably in the engine room. Uh, something a a finger getting or a hand getting crushed or some a pulley catching hold of something. Yeah, because you know they, they they are big, big machines, and you can't. There's covers on things, but you got to get in there and do a round and do your checks and check the levels and get in in amongst the machines to see the gauges. And you've got to be careful, and right. anything can go wrong. There's there's a hundred ways you can hurt yourself down there, but that's the major one. And really, there's not much you can do if something gets pulled off by a pulley other than package it up and, and get out of there as quickly as possible. But sure. we will never, you know. I mean, I think, you know, a, a lot of people here in our, you know, in our audience, you know, they, they do extreme work. Um, many of them do extreme, you know, or austere medicine. Uh, and, you know, we're are, are well-trained to do it um, and prioritizing. Yeah. You feel that, that, you know, you, you've done all sorts of kind of expeditions. And I think, you know, people tend to maybe under-prioritize, um, you know, medical training or, uh, or having those medical resources. Do you yeah. feel, uh, you know, that's been an issue with some of these expeditions that you've done, some of these organizations you've worked with, that they just kind of under-prioritize the potential for these things and don't, you know, don't have the planning? Or do you feel that, 
you know, as, uh, as years have gone by, people understand the importance and need for kind of having, you know, some pre-planning, having this, you know, kind of safety net situation. The problem I find is that the companies where your CEO at some point in his career was working on the ground, on the ship or at the station or whatever, and understands it from the, from that side, you don't have a problem because they understand the kind of risks you're taking just by being there, just by, mm-hmm. just by turning up without doing anything. You know, you've got, a, you've got a few millimeters of steel between you and the Southern Ocean at all times. Anything can go wrong. You know, right. if you, water comes in where it shouldn't and it's all over. It all disappears underneath you. And a lot of these big companies, the bigger they are, the taller the corporate structure the more distant they are from the problem and the it tends to show up in the equipment choices that turn up on the ship that have been purchased the gear choices whether it's operational gear whether it's medical gear and you think well this is of no use to us first of all because of the of the environment we're working in uh, you know well whatever it may be and there is a problem and i'm actually in the middle of trying to solve it by pulling together um, hotshot operators, professionals who are either remote EMTs and their rope techs, and perhaps they're, they're coxswains with um, sea rescue or something, and as many of these skills as I can find in, in one person at a time to try and bring that kind of expertise. I'm not going to try and change the whole corporate structure and trying to introduce a whole the whack of uh, competent guides that takes years to try to catch up. But what, right. what, what can happen is inserting people who know what they're doing. And if, if things start to go sideways, it immediately defaults to them and, and they run the show as far as whether it's technical rescue, uh, medical emergency or whatever it may be, or at least orchestrate things because, um, you know, Expedition leaders these days tend to, whenever you have guests around, they have a lot of attention on them. They have a lot of side distractions. They tend to be also a bit of a cruise director and they've got to show up every night and do their thing. So they can't have their eye on the ball all the time. And there is a, there's a big gap in, in what I would consider competent enough to work in those conditions and the type of people, because of the amount of ships that are going down there, it's a, it's a booming industry, especially Antarctica. Everyone wants to go. And there's, I believe, 36 more ships going to hit the water in the next year or two. And they, it hasn't seemed to have stopped. They just keep building and nothing stopped during Corona, uh, the, during the lockdowns and everything. They just keep cranking them out. So the problem is that you're going to get some fairly new inexperienced guides and then a lot of weight is going to be placed on the more experienced guides to operationally cover that and then still you've got this you need a high level medical specialist because the ship doctor doesn't cut it they're not emergency medical technicians most of them i find uh, tend to be just gps who have either retired early and, and taken on something different or from what I can tell from some, some of the times I've been treated, perhaps they, 
ran into some trouble on land and decided to, <laughs> to move their practice onto a ship when perhaps the rules are different or something. But I, I've right. never had much luck or any use for a, a, a general ship doctor. You know, they'll deal with ailments and they'll, it's like going to a pharmacist. It's about as good, as much help as you can get there. But what if someone comes up from the engine room again with, with a piece of them torn off by a pulley or something, which can right. very easily happen? You, you know, some of the safety gear you wear, you know, the big coveralls they make you wear, that can, that's part of the problem. Most people that get pulled into machinery don't stick their hand in there. It's part of their clothing that get, gets pulled in. Sure. So, you know, that just increases the chances. I can't imagine these, these guys getting woken up at two in the morning with an, amp, with an amputation sitting in their, in their little consultation room. Right. And then being able to deal it with it when they're in the polar regions, you need you need a guy who who sees that who is either works in an industrial environment or as a as a paramedic or an emergency room tech in a very busy busy violent place because that's what right. you want on you you want you really want the best people you can find, right? Um, and that's what and I'm I trying think, to bring to it. Yeah, yeah, and I you know that's what we're trying to to bring as well. And we you know we have a lot of GPs. But our GP, you know, audience—they're interested in knowing um, how to manage these. They—they come to World Extreme Medicine um, because they're passionate about um, the environment. They're passionate about, you know, conservation. They're passionate mm -hmm. about, um, you know, exploration and expedition. Um, but they yeah. want to—they come here for that kind of training, that education, and you know, it's—it really is a—it's a completely different, you know, mindset. Um, you know, I worked for many years in urban 911 systems, that's completely different than doing wilderness medicine. Um, sure. It's completely different from doing SWAT medicine or working on an oil rig and, and you know, oh. needing to make, you know, needing to develop that skill set. And that's what I think, you know, here at World Extreme Medicine, um, we're, you know, really um, trying to develop these programs so that individuals get that experience. They understand kind of the, you know, the, the medical um, training that they need to be able to go out on these expeditions and provide the appropriate care. Um, and, and you, you meant, you know, you clearly, you know, um, mirror kind of that, that idea, which is that this is a different world and your resources are going to be limited. Um, you're going to see different types of, you know, injury patterns. You're going to see different ailments and um, it's really, in, it's a specialty in and of itself. You know, you have yeah. OBGYN, you have ENT, you know, extreme medicine is really a specialty in and of itself. And I, yeah. I think it's going to mirror the idea that we're trying to um, put forth here as well. Um, I have another question. Yeah. No, oh, go. Sorry. Go ahead. I want you to explain. No, I mean, and, and, and environment specific, you know, and, and, and as it should be, just as you would train for specific survival skills in, in different environments, I think the medic the medicine needs to take that into consideration. Look, in the polar regions, there's really not much you can do. You know, right. you, you have to get out as quickly as possible, evacuation as quickly as possible to the nearest land-based facility is the only recourse you have. And even that, we're, we're, there's no point taking them to, to the Antarctic bases because then they're going to get stuck with them. They don't want you to involve with civilian um, but they, they'll, they'll perhaps fly you out if you're very, very lucky timing-wise. But what's right. going to happen is, is, is more than likely two or three days on, on a, at sea, 
perhaps there's a ship already going back and they'll transfer you onto that ship. And then you're going to bounce from there to the Chilean or the Argentinian Navy, who's going to then take you on. And then another ship ride, another boat ride, and a helicopter ride. Then you're, then you're just making it to perhaps a, a, a local airport, which you can then fly to Buenos Aires and, and on and on. Wow. So it will be a hell of a thing. And, yeah. and helivac or medivacs from, from down there are, are just torturously long. But it's, it's the right. only thing you can do. You just can't stop. Because that process is so long to get them out, you just can't stop. You've got to do the best you can. And most of the time, I mean, the only deaths we've ever had are, are just elderly people in in their you know in that age range and just natural causes in their sleep or heart attack no no major accidents as yet but these things tend to be an odds game you know when you play a game long enough eventually you're going to see a little bit of everything a little bit of action and an accident is inevitable there's so there's enough close calls that if you track the close calls you start, you know, it's enough of a concern to see a pattern there. And you're like, well, this is just a matter of time here. And it's sure. going to be an epic, you know, it's the same as a, as a medical emergency or an injury in a, in a cave. One hour in for an able-bodied person could mean 24 hours in a stretcher to get back out to that hour that you, you covered by yourself. Wow. It's, it's horrendous. The, 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 the ratio from, from <laughs> travel into the cave and, and rescue out and the amount of people that you have to throw at this thing. Um, there was that very, very famous cave rescue in Utah, which they now have bricked up. They just bricked it up eventually. It was such a, such a mess. They bricked it up and, and forgot about it. But there was a guy got stuck upside down in the crawl. So he was head first jammed upside down. So they brought everyone in. Eventually they had a hundred rescuers in there. They could wow. literally, and they were only 100 meters in from the entrance. So you could literally go hand-to-hand, rescuer to rescuer, from the guy to the en- entrance. It took them like 24 or something hours. They got expert riggers to come in there. The whole system blew eventually. They put so much tension on the system that the, ca- the bolts blew from the wall and shot carabiners across the room and injured two or three more people on top of it. And then they dropped this guy even further. And he got jammed even further, and then he unfortunately passed away at that point. Mm. And, you know, this is 100 people, 100 meters from broad daylight where they could just load him into an ambulance at the parking lot. 24 right. hours, and all you are is stuck upside down in a hole. That's it. They yeah. could have eas- Everyone walked them- themselves right to where he was. And, you, you know, these things are so, so the medical part of things is... You're fortunate if you get to that, if, sure. if you can yeah, even just, get to that. Just getting them at out. At least the out. types of, of yes. Yeah, <laughs> getting, getting them out, them out is your best bet. Wilderness-wise, yeah. you know, you can just learn how to splint down. this and, and get fancy with tree branches and backpacks and, and cutting pant legs. It's desperate stuff, and you're going to run out of materials very, very quickly. And as soon as that stuff is probably going to cause 
it's very, very temporary. When you know there's a chopper on the way, perhaps tomorrow, they can't come in tonight because of bad weather, maybe two days, but you're not moving. Yeah. You're just stationary. There's no running around. But ultimately, the only reason you're not moving is because someone's coming to you. And if someone isn't, oh, I feel sorry for that guy because you're going to have to, literally. The only rescues I've ever been involved in, you're not waiting around. We pulled some kid off the Kumbu Glacier, the most bizarre encounter I think I've ever had in the mountains. There were a group of Singaporean school children who had never experienced anything colder than 17 degrees Celsius in an air-conditioned building in Singapore. That was their life up until that point. Right. So two of their teachers decided now they're going to take 25 of them to Everest Base Camp for a school trip. So, they, so we're in Gorak Shep right at the top, the last tea house, the night before I'm suffering a little bit. I have been for a few days and I'm weak and I've been, I was in bed for a while and I was struggling. I should have gone down, but uh, no one was watching me and I was managing myself. And when you're in that state, you have to be careful. You can easily just lull yourself to sleep and get into a lot of trouble at altitude. But anyway, we were sitting around the fire and this whole lot comes pouring in through the door in the dark. Now they've just arrived. It's dark. They just made it back following the lights. They come in the door, they all sit down, door slams. Two minutes later, I see the head teacher just looking around and doing a head count. And then he looks mm. at his assistant and says, well, we're short one. Mm. And their very next move, I still, I'll never forget it. He stood up, he took his cap off his head, he put it across his chest, and he asked everyone to do a minute's silence for their companion that has been lost. They didn't even walk to the front door to see if this kid had crawled himself to the, to the, <laughs> they had completely after two minutes, they wrote him off. Wow. One minute silence right there. They was going to order a bowl of noodles and go to bed that night. And that was it. So me, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I thought I was hallucinating or something because I, you know, I was in a bit of a dreamy altitude head state. And then I looked over at my partner and she, her, the way her eyes looked, I thought, okay, no, I, I just witnessed that. So I went next door. I knew there was this huge Irish guy I'd been tracking with the past few days. I went to fetch him. And I said, we've got to go look for this kid because they've written him off. He's going to be dead by the morning. It was minus 15. He was in shorts and a T-shirt and, and sneakers somewhere on the Kumbu Glacier between there and, and base camp. And we just piled down there in the dark. It was clear night. It was getting colder by the, by the hour. And eventually we, f we heard him whimpering and we found him. He had fallen and fractured his leg. But there was n nothing to do. It's just grab him by the scruff of the neck. The two of us were already struggling and we yanked him out of there. We literally just hauled him up the moraine, which was a, com a, a combination of, of rocks and, and gray talcum powder, which was awful you know you take one step forward and you go two back with a kid but you know that's all you can do is get out of there you know they can't get fancy There's, until you get us to a stable environment and even then we just got him back to the shack kept him warm and, and flew him out by chopper luckily five and a half thousand meters is, is, is still flyable the, the the army flies in the party army usually comes that high at least and up a little further yeah. but you know, yeah. it, it tends to be, any of these things tend to have a pattern of some level of incompetence along the way, these little things that let slip, and then it turns into a big accident. And what always happens is someone else comes along and has to deal with it. 
They never train yeah. themselves. It's always someone that comes rushing in the, the, and, and deals with it. And literally three days ago, we were on driving the highway here, and it just felt, the traffic felt like furious and nervous. Everyone was driving around nervous, nervously. And we were on a seven-hour drive, and we came around the bend, and I saw this, there was a piece of the cement barrier missing on the, on the corner and a bunch of plastic lying on the ground. So I told my partner to pull over immediately. I looked over the edge, and there was an RV towing behind it in the forest and two, with two old people at the wheel. Mm. And this whole thing, the engine was running. I could smell diesel everywhere. If, there was a bunch of people standing at the top of the hill, just staring down, taking pictures. I just launched myself down the hill, straight in there. There, there was one guy who, who, was, who came from the other side, and we just got together. We, we, we literally grabbed this old lady under the arms and hauled her up the, the slope. I got into the engine. I tried to shut down, I shut down the motor because it was, it was pouring diesel everywhere. There was a big, the, the big, probably 300 liter tank had been ruptured underneath. And the old guy was stumbling around inside looking for trivial things. You know, he's in a bit of a bit of shock. Adrenaline's going, he's, he's giggling and, and looking for the most trivial stuff. And eventually we kind of shepherded him out of there and I grabbed, grabbed his medication and the basics because we were in an area that for 105 kilometers, there was no, in either direction, there was no cell phone signal. It was, oh, the, wow. it couldn't have been in a worse place. Right off the highest part, it's a viewpoint. He went off the viewpoint. <laughs> so wow. you can imagine, you went I for mean, one hell of a ride. As he could. Yeah, I can understand that, you know. Oh, no, he, uh, he got run off the road by a trucker. He got oh, run wow. off the road by a trucker yeah. trying to overtake and just pushed him. Oh, man. It's unfortunate, you know, most people these days, they're more interested in, in filming it so that they can get it <laughs> onto some outlet instead of helping. Um, but, you know, on, on a much smaller level, I remember hiking in the White Mountains of New Hampshire with a friend and uh, we were coming down and there was a guy that, you know, he said he was he was a young kid and he was with a group. Uh, but the group had kind of let him, they, you know, he thought he had sprained his ankle. He had fractured his ankle. And the group said, oh, you are you going to be okay? You're going to be okay. He was clearly not going to be okay, but they had left him there to kind of stumble his way down. And we took turns helping him down because um, yeah. it was going to get dark. It was going to get cold and he was going to be left there alone. And it was just, just no one was prepared and everyone wanted to get, get down on their own. And yeah. uh, he'll eventually make it. I don't think they got down there and immediately uh, had a moment of silence. That's probably the worst story I've heard. Unbelievable. Yeah. You sign your permission slip, <laughs> I guess that's what you get, right? But um Wow, yeah. At least look at the front door to see if it works. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he's got locked just out. Pe just peek out the window, maybe you can see him lying there somewhere. <laughs> nice. Do exactly. something. Yeah, he just might have just made <laughs> that would have been at least a minimal amount of effort you could have done. Well, yeah. we're, and we're running out of time. We're gonna wrap it up um here in a, a few minutes. If you had uh just kind of some take home points. Um, for our listeners today, we talked about a lot of topics, um, but really important issues. If you had a, just a couple of take home points, um, anything you want to kind of, you know, leave our audience with um, as take home points? Uh, medically speaking, as far as expedition goes, I would say 
don't take anything for granted. Don't expect that there's going to be someone there that's going to be able to take care of you if you go down. And you may be the one, and it most likely will be, if you're really thinking about those type of stuff, you're really that type of person that will jump into that situation. If you're one of these people that leaps into situations to try to help, make sure that you know what you're doing before you leap in there. Don't go in there and offer a hand and you don't have actual skills because you're, gonna, you're just adding potential danger to the problem. You're, you're exposing yourself because you, with the proper training, you know that you have to go in and assess before you run into anything. Assess it and make sure that you're not going to get yourself into trouble because another casualty is of no use. Get the skills and don't don't expect. Oh, there's someone trained because if the if the person who's responsible for medical emergencies goes down, then what? Right. Then then you're all stuck, and then you're all look. Then it's a, not a very good time to decide who's going to be responsible for for people's lives. And now someone who's gone down. So, it, I think it should be a life skill. Emergency medicine at at least emergency first aid. For, for urban environments should be taught at school as a subject, I believe, because not only for your own good, for your, the good of your family, whether it's someone choking on something silly at dinner or your dad getting a lawnmower blade to the foot in the backyard, uh, you can't just rely on someone on the other end of the phone to turn up and magically whisk them off. You know, that, that's all good and well if, you're on the, if you live on the side of the road. But if I take a my my position here, for instance, I'm an hour and a half on the highway away from an, uh, from the nearest hospital, and I've got to find my I've got to get down to the road first with what an axe injury or a chainsaw injury or some trees fallen on me or some you know that's the you have to uh, remember that prepare yourself to the level of exposure you are putting yourself into when you go on these trips. Don't do your three-day urban first aid course and then go and disappear in the wilderness on a, on a month-long expedition. It's just not going to cut it. But um, right. as far as, as Sea Shepherd, as we started, and, and that I would say uh, there's not enough time now for protesting and petitioning and whatever. You've got to get involved on your local level and vote with your money. You People... This fish and this wildlife is being poached and hunted and brought to the table because people are willing to pay for it. You're paying for it. Stop paying for it and there's no market. You kill the market immediately. They're all businessmen. Capitalists are the same. They're predictable. They might be greedy. And if you see it one way, you just see it as greed. But they'll go wherever the money is. If, you, if we go towards uh, you know, uh, plant-based food, they'll sell us plant-based food. They'll set up plant-based food cat, uh, and, and get rid of all fish as long as it makes them money. So we, we vote with our money. There's no politician who's going to fix it. They never will. They're just a bunch of paid a a of actors, political actors, and it's getting more and more ridiculous by the day. Don't rely on them. Don't rely on the this, this kind of anonymous government agencies that are just going to come in and fix things. It's not. You're, if if you're concerned about the ocean and, and fish, stop eating fish, don't pay for it. But choose to eat something else, and the problem will eventually diminish where the market is not there anymore. Do, be careful of, of stuff with animal products in uh, supplements, uh, makeup, that type of thing. It's full of it. Um, so just be 
careful where you spend your money and the market will come in line. There's no point. We're not trying to start wars here because it's a subtle subject. There's the indigenous side of things and then there's commercial. In all of these, in, in the polar bear, the sealing, the fishing, there's the, the indigenous side where people are subsistence living. We're not going near that and we're not arguing against any of that. We're talking about big corporations in the West run out of Spain or China or or the US that are going out there and doing in, in one day will do more damage than any traditional fishing would do in a, in a decade. I, I would venture to guess, oh. but I would say vote with your money. If you, if you, if you don't have something that you can go out there and it's about the most powerful, I would say. Well, thank you so much. Um, you know, if our listeners want to connect with you, are you, on any of the social media outlets or any um, things you'd like to direct our listeners to um, so they can uh, learn more about what your work has been and uh, you know, uh, your adventures? Sure. I'm happy to connect on, on LinkedIn. I find it a more professional environment, especially to discuss these types of tricky issues. You know, if you, the other platforms tend to be a little, a little rougher to, to deal with, but, uh, but I do have a my, – my website has some of my – well, my, my bio, my contact info, and some of the photography that goes along with all these experiences right. I have. And that's at www.adventuretravel.world. And Great. it's all there. Well, thank you. And, um, I'm sure our listeners will be uh, interested in, in learning more about that. Um, and certainly, um, we encourage everyone to visit our own website at World Extreme Medicine follow us on Instagram, uh, follow us on Facebook, listen to our podcasts. Um, also many of our live programs, uh, and pre-recorded, you know, educational sessions. Um, you know, this is, uh, we, we cover it all in austere medicine. Um, and this is, uh, as you mentioned, it's important to have that experience, have that training to do the right thing. Um, when these kind of situations arise. Uh, so Stefano, thanks so much. This has been a great, um, conversation, um, I hope we get to chat again soon. I'm sure our listeners will want to hear uh, from you again. Um, and stay safe out there. Uh, uh, we, uh, we, we, you just told us you're far, far away from any civilization. So we want yeah. you to <laughs> um, so stay safe, uh, stay healthy. And thank you for joining us on today's World Extreme Medicine podcast. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for the time. It was a pleasure. Thank you.